Now, a few months ago, uh, back in the summer, I think it was in August, I dragged out my dad's tackle box that I had inherited when he passed away and showed you that in his giant tackle box, there were a number of classic antique fishing lures, valuable in part because they'd never been out of the box. And I talked about how it was such a shame that something like that wasn't used for what it was meant for. As we reflect a little bit together uh, as an object lesson, what are we meant for? How are we meant to be used by God? And how can we live into that instead of ignoring that? Well, whether or not some of you actually heard that lesson, I, I'm not sure because the question most of you asked on the way out the door was, well, have you used those lures <laughs> since you had them? And more importantly, have you caught any fish? Isn't that really the important question? Have you caught any fish? It turns out that fishing here in Colorado is a little different than it was when I lived in Chicago. In Chicago, it's mostly pond and lake fishing. It's trout, uh, I mean, it's bass and salmon fishing. And that's the kind of fishing I grew up with. I know how to put a spoon lure on a uh, casting rod and put it out in the lake. I know how to put a worm on a hook with a bobber and wait and wait and wait for that bobber to start moving so that I know I've got a fish on the line. When I came to Colorado, I was introduced to this thing called fly fishing, which it turns out is as much of an art as it is a science or a skill. It turns out fly fishing is, well, it's hard. It's hard to know exactly what sort of bug is hatching at what time of day and find the fly that looks like that kind of bug and then learn how to tie that fly onto your line. And then this mystical, magical art of casting into the river, knowing where to cast into the river, how to read the river, where the water seems to be holding still and maybe holding fish to look upstream and downstream, to be able to cast and then mend your line and know where the line is supposed to go. And all of this while standing out in the middle of a freezing cold stream, trying not to get knocked over by the current and topple in and get wet. And there have been moments when I've been out fly fishing, when I've been so consumed with the how of how to fly fish that I eventually stepped back a bit and thought, I ought to be asking myself why. Why am I doing this? And whether you've been fly fishing or not in your life, I suspect you have had that experience of feeling so caught up in the weeds of a moment of how do I do this that you needed to step back and ask yourself the question, why am I doing this? Because if you can't answer the question why, then it probably doesn't matter whether or not you spend time worrying about the how. Now, maybe for some of us this occurred when we were juniors or seniors in college, trying to figure out the how of getting through exams and uh, internships, and in my case as an education major, a student teaching uh, assignment. And in the midst of all of those hows, occasionally a student will wake up and go, wait, why am I majoring in this topic? Why am I following this career path? Is it to fulfill some unmet expectation of my parents, or is it because I think I'm going to make a lot of money, or it's popular, or because there was a cute girl in class who was majoring in this, and I thought I would follow her to the next class. If you're really struggling with the how, it's better to step back and ask the question, why? For some of us, perhaps this has occurred in a kind of midlife crisis, 
Whether you wake up one day at age 40 or 50 or insert whatever age is appropriate for you, and in the midst of struggling with all of the hows of balancing a career and a family and paying off a mortgage and juggling health care and education and the world around us, in the midst of all of those how problems, you step back and go, why am I making these choices? Why am I the person I've become today? Why am I trying to achieve the things that seem to be so important? Now, sometimes the wrestling between how and why happens in those big picture moments. Sometimes it just happens in a more lighthearted, everyday moment. I know I've found myself from time to time trying to read through the owner's manual for a household appliance that an hour ago I was convinced I could fix on my own without having to call somebody. And in the midst of the how, I have to step back and ask myself, why am I trying to do this without calling somebody? Is it because I think I'll save time and money, or is it really tied to my ego, my masculinity, that I need to be able to figure this out? It's good sometimes in the midst of how to step back and ask why. So for these next few weeks, we are going to focus together on the questions about what it means to nurture in our community and in our own life of faith a spirit and a practice of generosity, what does it mean to live generous lives? And it turns out that living generous lives is difficult. It can be challenging, especially in the world that we live in today. I'll never forget a few years ago, a church member called me, and she said, you know, I'm sitting here staring at my dining room table. I've got all of these solicitations from, it seems like, a hundred different, very worthy nonprofit organizations and ministries and causes and movements, and as I'm sorting through them all and trying to figure out how do I make this decision, I'm trying to understand why I live a life of generosity. What are the sort of the, the root fundamental reasons why I make this choice as a person of faith? And can that help me to decide between all of these choices that are in front of me? Being generous is not easy, even for those of us who understand that it's a positive thing. And to be clear, over these next couple of weeks, we will wrestle with some of those what questions, uh, what and where to be generous in our lives, how to do that. But for today, I want to begin at the beginning. I want to begin by thinking about the why question of generosity. And to help us today, I'm going to invite Lily Regan to come up and read our scripture lesson. She's going to read to us a passage from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. Now, often this passage is read to help us understand the what of generosity, because it talks about some of the ways in which we are generous. But if we look carefully, I think it's going to help us answer the how question too. Lily, will you help us by reading today from Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 to 40. Listen to God's word for us today. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you, gave me, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When, did you see you, when do we see you a stranger and invite you in? or need in clothing, and clothe you. When do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one 
of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine you did for me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and thanks be to Lily. Thank you for reading our text today. Will you join me as we pray? Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, for you alone are our rock and our redeemer. And let all God's people say, Amen. Well, we Presbyterian-flavored Christians have a collection of creeds and confessions that we use to help guide us in our life of faith. They begin in the early centuries with the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, reflections, uh, professions of faith that we sometimes include in baptisms and other sacraments here at First Presbyterian Church. And they include some of the confessions of the Reformation from the 15th and 16th century, and they include some more contemporary confessions from the 20th century as well. Some of you, if you've studied some of those confessions, know well the Westminster Confession, which famously begins with this question, admittedly in a bit outdated language, which asks, what is the chief end of man? And let's do a pop quiz and see how well you do, Presbyterians. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Nicely done. It's good that we have some nerdy Presbyterians here at First Press. Yeah, our chief end as humankind is to glorify God, to enjoy God forever. That's where we begin, and that's where the confession begins as well. Now, why? Why do we glorify God? Why do we worship God? We remind ourselves of that each and every week when we gather. Again, in a somewhat uniquely Reformed or Presbyterian way, our service of worship each week can, can includes words of confession. And then, as Ron led us a few minutes ago, followed by confessing the ways that inevitably we frail and fallible human beings stumble along the way as we try to put Christ in the center of our lives, we are assured of our forgiveness, the assurance of pardon, we call it, and listen again to the words that Ron led us through. Hear the good news. Because God loves us, we lack for nothing. Because God forgives us, we have everything we need. Because God surrounds us with sisters and brothers, we do not journey alone. So committing everything to God, trusting in the one who redeems us, we choose to live as faithful and forgiven people. And together we say, thanks be to God. Now, I chose this passage this morning from Matthew because in addition to reminding us of the various ways in which we encounter one another in need, which we'll get to in a minute, notice that the text ends by reminding us that as you've done it unto the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done it unto me. That is, the ways that we live our lives out in generosity towards and with one another is in fact an expression of worship to God. And among the various ways in which we express ourselves in worship to God, one that's relevant here is an expression of gratitude. As we gather once a month ordinarily around the communion table, we begin that prayer at the table, it is right to give our thanks and praise, we say. Why? Because from the beginning of time, as we have sought to follow the way of God, inevitably we go our own way and stumble. And God, we say in words like this, chases after us in relentless love through the words of prophets and poets until eventually God comes, God's self in Jesus Christ. We reminded ourselves at the call to worship today, 
Jesus comes to lead us and heal us, to feed us and teach us. And even as Christ's friendship is returned with death, with crucifixion and death, it's in his resurrection that he offers the way for us to abundant and eternal life. And so in gratitude for all that God has done first for us, we respond in worship and, and praise. That's part of how we understand the why of generosity. Why? Because God has done it first for us. Now, one of the challenges to thinking about generosity in this way is that inevitably, once we understand the worship part of that, the expression of gratitude, it's understandable that we human beings tend to begin thinking about it in rather practical and concrete ways. Luke's gospel, you'll remember, has this wonderful parable Jesus tells about the faithful and unfaithful servants. And that parable famously ends by Jesus saying, to whom much is given, much is required. Now, some of us were introduced to that uh, a little bit earlier in our lives as children in the words of the famous theologian, Spider-Man. <laughs> who said, with great power comes great responsibility. It was actually Spider-Man's uncle that told him that, right? But that uh, wonderful phrase, with great power comes great responsibility, it's actually sometimes attributed to Winston Churchill, who I think, to be fair, got it from Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. With great power comes great responsibility, or to whom much is given, much is required. And when we tend to begin thinking about that in a rather practical way, it's understandable that we try to begin quantifying God's blessings to us. Well, to whom much is given, honestly, how much have I been given? And then we slide down that slippery slope of comparison between ourselves and one another. How much really have I been given, well, compared to the guy sitting next to me in the pew or the woman sitting next to me at work? We begin to compare the generosity God has extended to us as we calculate the generosity that we ought to offer back to one another. We compare bank accounts and resumes and square footage. We begin to move from gratitude instead to obligation, comparing ourselves to one another, beginning to think about the fact that what I have or what I deserve or what I have a right to, rather than reframing our mindset towards responsibility with one another rather than rights for one another. Instead of thinking, what do I deserve? What is it that I can offer? What is it that I can do? And this begins to lead us into a second fundamental understanding of the why of generosity. Yes, an expression of worship to God, as it should be, a central act of our lives, but also an embodiment of our lives oriented not towards self, but towards other, towards one another. And to be fair, this is a contrast between some of our traditions, like ours, and some other Christian traditions, traditions of faith. There are traditions of faith, for example, where the primary orientation of this life is only towards the next life, our eternal life. And much of what we understand happens in this world is irrelevant, is immaterial, because really we're just trying to hold on to a pious life that guarantees our salvation to get into the next world. Rather than our tradition, among others, which truly understands that our work in this life is critically important. The ways in which we work towards the good of all. Uh, we sometimes talk about the greater good and the common good, which we understand that socially and culturally, politically, environmentally, 
and in so many other ways that what we do here and now really matters. That our lives here and now are not just about setting us up for the next life. We believe that we are partners with Christ, after all, in building up the kingdom of God, ushering in the reign of God. Some of us recall, and we've said it here a few times, the wonderful words of the mystic Teresa of Avila. She says, Christ has no body but yours, nor hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which Christ looks with compassion on the world. Yours are the feet with which Christ walks about doing good. Yours are the hands with which Christ blesses the world. Said more recently by German theologian Jürgen Moltmann, Moltmann writes, God's kingdom is experienced in the present in companionship with Jesus, where the sick are healed and the lost are found, where people who are despised are accepted and the poor discover their own dignity. That rings of Matthew 25, doesn't it? Where people have become rigid and fossilized, now become alive again, and old, tired life becomes young and fruitful once more, there the kingdom of God begins. Our understanding of resurrection, after all, Moltmann writes, it's not a consoling opium soothing us with a promise of a better world in the next life. It's the energy for the rebirth of this life, together here and now. The hope doesn't point to another world. It's focused on the redemption of this world, our world. In the spirit, resurrection is not merely expected. It's already experienced. Resurrection happens in and through us every day. And I imagine in German it sounds even more profound and beautiful than that. Our lives of generosity, yes, our expression of worship, and that worship is embodied in the ways we partner with Jesus and open ourselves up to be used by Jesus to answer our own corporate prayer. Thy kingdom come, we say every week. Thy kingdom come now. Thy kingdom come through my life, my acts of generosity, now on earth as it is in heaven. And so we understand the why of generosity as an expression of worship. We understand it as a way of partnering with Jesus in building up the kingdom of God here and now. And third, we understand it because it changes the ways in which we see and therefore relate to one another in community. And here we have to go back and have a little bit of that history lesson that Pam was talking about, one of the lenses through which we look at Scripture in the first century, it was commonly understood that if a person was poor or sick or disabled or had some other circumstances in their lives that was weighing them down, that that wasn't just because of the bad luck of DNA, that they were born into a poor family. It wasn't because there were some external circumstances in their lives that had caused that to happen. Instead, it was understood that those things happened because there was something wrong with somebody. Not something wrong in the world, but there was something wrong with somebody. And as a result, if people were experiencing some trauma in their lives, some disability or disease in their lives, then they were ostracized and marginalized and stigmatized. It changed the ways that they understood themselves. In fact, it became their whole identity. And notice what Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel. And it's a little phrase there at the end that's easy to miss. Because Jesus is not just setting this up as we feed the hungry or we clothe the naked in a kind of transactional giver and receiver way in which we, the givers, are the good ones and the receivers are the 
clients or the recipients who are only understood or identified in that way. But there's something magical that happens at the end of that phrase that Lily read just a few minutes ago. As you've done it under the least of these, Jesus says, and he could have just left it there. The least of these, the lost, the lonely, the least. But instead, there's that extra phrase. As you've done it under the least of these, what? My brothers and sisters. In other words, we now change the identity as simply a person who is in need to a person who is a part of the family of God just as we are. In other words, a reorientation of giver and receiver to an orientation of we all, y'all, as our friends in the South say, all y'all, right? That we are all a part of that family of God. We've talked a few times this fall about that uh, wonderful image that we are all, not strangers to one another, but instead siblings in Christ, members of the household of God, perhaps separated at birth and now finally reunited in a way in which we never then meet a stranger or someone who is unfamiliar to us because we are all connected in that family of faith. That's the kind of spirit of generosity then towards one another who is, of course, someone I would be generous with because they are a part of my family. It's not giving to someone who's in need, it's sharing with my brother or sister. Several years ago, we were talking with members here on the staff and in leadership, members of our congregation, about some of the reasons why they were embodying generosity in their lives, ways that they had learned to practice generosity. And I'll never forget the conversation I had with Marge Rice. Many of you know Marge. She served here for uh, a number of years as our director of caring. Uh, she had first started coming to church here with her mom, bringing her mom so that her mom could attend services. And then, as it turns out, the kind of infectious, contagious nature of uh, this congregation rubbed off on her, and she ended up getting involved herself, even becoming a part of our staff. One time when she was on staff, she was going through a bout of cancer and facing herself as somebody who was often the caregiver, uh, being in the care receiver mode. And one Monday morning, she came into the office and discovered that somebody had put two $50 bills in an envelope and put it in her mailbox, knowing that along with the medical bills and the medicine that she was facing some needs in her life. There was no name on it. No one ever took credit for it. The next Monday morning, she got to work, and there was an envelope with two $50 bills in it. And the next week, she got to work on Monday, and there was an envelope with two $50 bills in it. This went on for weeks as somebody freely, without taking any credit for it, without any strings attached, just offered a pure expression of generosity and grace and love to her. And she said, it was in that moment that I learned again the profound lesson of generosity as we received undeserved and unearned that gift of generosity and love from God. She was finding it in the tangible expression of one of her sisters and brothers in Christ, someone that perhaps she didn't even know, but was a sibling from whom she had been separated at birth, and in this moment was being reconnected in the family of God. Marge said, you know, my mom used to always tell me a wonderful lesson that I've held on to. She said, Marge, there's two kinds of people in the world. One that walks into a room that's full and says, here I am. And another that walks into a room full of people and says, there you are. There you are. 
The difference between an orientation towards self and an orientation towards other. That's a kind of spirit of generosity, a spirit of embracing our own full personhood and belovedness and claiming it for one another in a family of faith as well. To be able to look out on the world around us in this congregation and beyond and say, there you are. There you are hungry for meaning in life, thirsty for purpose. There you are a stranger yearning for belonging and a community to call home. There you are naked, stripped of your facades and longing for a place to come just as you are. There you are imprisoned by your past, perhaps, stuck in old habits, drawn, drawn, uh, dragged down by the weight of a false identity that does not yet believe in your membership in the family of God. There you are, sick. Sick, maybe, of a world that is not as it should be, a life that is not as you had hoped it would be. There you are. There you are, seen and valued. And together, together, we all are equipped by the Holy Spirit to choose a life of generosity, a generous life of praise and partnership, joining Jesus and one another to lift up the least of these and live a joy-filled life of gratitude for all that God has done and is doing. All that God is doing, we believe in and is yet to do through our lives as we shine out Christ's light to the world. A gift, a generous gift for all. Amen.